Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Dragons roared as one. Is When I'm queen, I'm creating order. I am to inherit the Iron Throne. She will block my way. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching House of the Dragon, the weekly podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Josh Wiggler, and I'm joined by Richard Lawson, and we are but two of the 10 million people currently watching House <laughs> of the Dragon. Richard, how you doing? I'm good. I mean, that was a massive premiere. I don't, did you see that um, that video of uh, someone took outside of a New York City apartment where like every TV and every window was playing the, the premiere episode? <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, yeah. like completely, completely insane. I'm I'm old enough to remember when we were talking about the death of the water cooler episode uh, when Game of Thrones was wrapping up a few years ago. Much like Jon Snow, Richard, the water cooler episode is alive again. Oh, the, the water cooler isn't. <laughs> Everyone's working <laughs> from home. Where did that go? I'm yeah. thirsty. I could really use a water cooler right now. Uh, but clearly people are watching the show. Uh, I think people have a lot of big thoughts and feelings about the show. I'm really interested in finding out what the viewership looks like for episode two. Obviously, we are recording this at a point where we do not know the answer to that question. But I'm going to be very, very interested in seeing how many people stick around. How much was the violence of the premiere and some of the tone of the premiere going to push people away? Uh, but at least for now, Richard, it seems like uh, a pretty, pretty huge hit for HBO. 
Yeah, I think we chose the right show to cover. Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. For the summer, it was a gamble, though. You know, uh, we had a lot of things that we could have picked. It could have been uh, Westeros or Westworld, and I think we chose wisely. Ultimately, I think so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so much to discuss with this one episode two of House of the Dragon: The Rogue Prince. We're going to recap it. We're going to go through it scene by scene. Of course, we want to hear from you out there in listener land. We would love to get some feedback from you for this podcast. You can write in stillwatchingpod at gmail.com is our feedback line. Stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Richard, before we get into this one specifically for a second episode of House of the Dragon, how did you feel this one measured up? Did you feel like it was living up to the promise of the first episode? Did you feel like it was advancing the ball in a way that was keeping your curiosity? Yeah, because I think, you know, obviously the big turn of the first episode is we have Rhaenyra named the heir to uh, Viserys, and that's kind of establishing what this, at least this season, or maybe the whole show is going to be about. And then episode two, I think, very smartly jumps right into what that would actually look like and reminds us that while an heir has been declared and people have bent the knee, that does not mean that this issue is settled. So I think that um, whereas the first episode was setting the table, now we're starting to move plates and stuff around and seeing how they interact with each other. I think it's interesting that the that the 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 matter is not settled, uh, not just because uh, there are people with conflicting uh, feelings about who should be on the throne, and Prince Damon certainly seems like he's not done messing around at this point. But there's everything that's going on with Viserys as well, which is going to dominate a ton of this episode. This question of it's been about half a year since the events of the premiere, so half a year since uh, the death of his wife and child, and he is being, um, you know, pretty, pretty significantly pushed in the direction of remarrying. And he's going to make a big choice by the end of this episode that there's the world in which he joins houses with Lord Corley's, the, the sea snake, uh, two Valyrian powerhouses joined as one. And despite the fact that many people in his small council are going to push him in that direction, he's going to go in a completely different way. And I think that the, uh, the choice to go uh, and propose marriage to Lady Allison clearly ruffling some feathers by the end of this episode. So a lot of drama here, not just for the Iron Throne, but within the throne room. Yeah. And as ever, you know, in this world and what George R.R. R. Martin has built, I love how it it's a show so much about causality and like how seemingly like the king, the widowed king marries someone and that is going to change the face of Westerosi history, you know, and I, I, it's really cool being in the rooms because a lot of times in, in the original Game of Thrones, that was kind of history, you know, yep. it was referred to how the Baratheons got into power and how this all happened. And so here we're seeing um, that groundwork being laid, um, you know, choice by choice. And I think that's really interesting. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. 
Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So we begin this episode, Richard, second episode in a row where we are starting outside of King's Landing. We are starting in the Stepstones, uh, which is an island chain uh, south of Westeros, very important for the shipping lanes uh, that uh, certainly the master of ships himself, the Sea Snake, is very concerned with. And once again, Game of Thrones going to Game of Thrones, and we're going to get some very gross, visceral images of men beating a lot, being eaten alive by crabs. I don't know if you had this on your bingo card coming into episode two of House of the Dragon. I just I'm amazed that this franchise can come up with new ways to show brutality and horrible things. Yeah, you know, this was original. <laughs> I, I'm imagining them looking at their big like corkboard and being like, have we done crabs yet? <laughs> Haven't yet done crabs. Uh, so we are seeing that there is a lot of violence that is happening, uh, not terribly far away from King's Landing. But when we go to King's Landing, it doesn't seem to be terribly high on Viserys Targaryen's to-do list. Uh, the Sea Snake especially is pretty annoyed with this. What we're getting into right now is the idea that the free cities are potentially funding these sort of acts of terrorism in the Stepstones that are uh, terrorizing the, the various people who are trying to transport goods to and from Westeros. And this is a very big deal for the Sea Snake, where Viserys Targaryen and House Targaryen, they have dragons. Lord Corlys has the fleet. Uh, this is what's important to him and to his house. And this is being shut down. And this is just getting very close to being the final diss uh, that the Sea Snake can tolerate at this point in time. Yeah, and it's an interesting profile of Viserys as a leader where, you know, he's been reigning over relative peacetime. We see that later manifested when they're trying to find a new member of the Kingsguard. And the problem is a lot of them haven't been in combat. Right. Um, and that was referenced last week, too. And you know, it's a fine line between he's a good king because it's been peaceful and he's ineffectual because he hasn't risen to meet certain challenges or, you know, violent situations, um, which we see here, you know, is leading to a lot of consternation among the people directly beneath him who are like, can you please do something about this? Yeah, somebody do something. Uh, and it is going to actually be Rhaenyra, a newly named heir to the Iron Throne, who is still acting in the role of cupbearer here at the small council, who is here in the room and perhaps emboldened by her, her new status in Westeros, is going to chime in with an idea of what to do about this situation. She says, send us. And by us, she means the dragon riders. She wants to, you know, have this big show of force that's going to make it clear that we are not to be trifled with. This should not be a thing that you are considering messing with the Targaryens. And yet this kind of falls flat in the room. Um, Rainier is going to hold on to this idea of like, maybe I should just drag and ride my way into a conflict at some point. But no one in the room really wants to be either hearing this idea or maybe Richard, it's specifically they don't want to be hearing this from Rainier. Yeah, I, I think it's more the latter. Um, I mean, look, we've seen this kind of trope played out in many things where the, the child of the warrior noble person wants to kind of act, emulate the parent. You know, I want to go to battle, too. I want to, you know, rob a bank, too, or whatever it is. And the parent really doesn't want that. And you have to question, as Rhaenys does later in the episode, is that because uh, Rhaenyra is too young or whatever? Or is it because she's a woman? And I think that obviously the the tension around her gender is starting to mount now that people actually have to look at her as a potential ruler. Um, and maybe there's a thought like, we don't want you riding dragons around because you could get killed and throw this back all into chaos. Right. Uh, so Rhaenyra instead is going to be tasked with something else. Here's some busy work, Rhaenyra. How about you choose a member of the King's Guard? We have a new knight. Uh, we have a vacancy on the King's Guard, so we have to have a new knight joining the squad. 
Rhaenyra is going to be given the uh, the position of hiring this person. Uh, and I don't know about you, but the moment that she is given the choice, this is pretty clear who the job is going to. This is going to be a Kristen Cole landslide. Yeah, I mean, she's a teenager. He's the handsomest boy in the room. You know, I don't, I don't blame her. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I think it's interesting that we see this sea snake kind of dismiss this this little bit of protocol or process as like uh, just stupid courtly matters. When we know, having watched Game of Thrones, that the Kingsguard is an important function. And, you know, Jamie Lannister was on it. And, um, you know, I, so I think that these scenes where there's this tension between um, trying to just do the, the regular business of the court and, and, and striking out, it's showing a real tension between like how people view how this throne is supposed to, to govern. And I, she ends up making the choice. She's going to go with Kristen Cole and the premiere yeah. really establishes that Rhaenyra uh, has definitely has eyes for, for Sir Kristen. But I think that she's also going to push back against people who are resistant to this idea when she's saying none of these people, this, this one person caught a poacher. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, Kristen Cole has combat experience. These people are going to be guarding my father. They're going to be guarding the throne. Shouldn't they know how to, how to handle themselves in combat? So I think it's, it's pretty easy to say that this is just like, you know, sort of a love struck decision that she makes, but it also feels like she's making a practical tactical call as well. Like this is the person in the room. I don't care if he's a political ally or not. He's somebody that's actually going to be able to do this job. This shouldn't be a ceremonial position. So you're kind of getting Rhaenyra's first real major command decision here in uh, enlisting Kristen to the Kingsguard. Yeah, you can be have a crush and be rational at the same time. It's uh-huh. possible. <laughs> Two things are true. Uh, true at once. Um, so let's go back with Viserys. And he is still having these sort of secret conversations with Lady Alicent. Uh, they are in his chambers, standing over this model replica of old Valyria, uh, where the Targaryens descend from long ago consumed by a mysterious doom. Do you think that this show is going to tell us what happened with the doom of Valyria, Richard, or are they going to save that for like the 10th spinoff that they do? I kind of wonder, because that was always one of the reading the original, you know, uh, Song of Ice and Fire books, they would allude to that a lot. And I liked that it was kind of this mystery. Was it an earthquake? Was it dragons? Was it who knows something else supernatural? Um, I, I like that it was sort of ambiguous. But I think that given how tightly connected the, the main characters in this sh- in this particular show are to that legacy, we might have to get a little more specific explication of what they're talking about. I think I'm happy if we get the Doom of Valyria here in House of the Dragon. I feel like this being a subject of its own successor show, it feels tempting. I just don't know that there is a ton of history there to draw from. George R. R. Martin has left it deliberately pretty vague uh, for probably a big future reveal in A Song of Ice and Fire should he ever get the chance to complete it. With that being said, the fact that the A Song of Ice and Fire prophecy was laid out at the end of the House of the Dragon premiere it does make me wonder how much this specific show is going to be a vehicle for these big Targaryen reveals. And if that's the case, I feel like its existence here in this scene and throughout this episode, the idea of this replica city of Valyria uh, and Viserys's obsession with it, is this indicating that this is going to be something that is explored, at least metaphorically? I think it works really well to underscore what's happening in this moment. Viserys is being pushed towards marriage. He's going to be pushed in the direction of Lord Corlys's family. And clearly, something else is developing here in terms of his feelings for Lady Alicent. Perhaps yeah. a doom of his own making happening right now. 
maybe any civilization ruled by Targaryens is going to have its kind of some kind of doom <laughs> befall mm-hmm. it. Um, I have a question because I know that you you know you've read the book that this show is based on, um, and it's my understanding that Alicent in that book is supposed to be a good maybe decade older. She's than about ten years older Rhaenyra, than Rhaenyra, yeah. but here they're being more pitched as the same age. And I'm, my question is, what is that age? Because there's a lot of talk about Viserys not wanting to marry a literal child, which is Grace's right. daughter, but. Allison doesn't seem that much older. So there's a line in this scene where uh, where Allison and Viserys are talking about um, the fact that Rhaenyra isn't speaking much to the king anymore, right. that things have been very fraught in the aftermath of the death of her mother, uh, as they ought to be. Um, and uh, she's basically Allison is pitching Viserys on why don't you go and talk to her? What if you go and talk to Rhaenyra? Why don't you start the conversation? He says, there are times where I would rather face the Black Dread himself than my own daughter of 15. So uh, if we are thinking that Allison and Rhaenyra are the same age, that places Allison at 15 years old. And that is um, that's tough. That's very tough for me, Richard. I have to say. And I think it's going to continue to be tough as the show goes on, um, just because, uh, you know, these actresses, we don't I don't really know how long these younger versions of these characters are going to be on the show. But it doesn't seem like they're going away anytime soon. And now that they're being, well, at least in one case, kind of coupled off with a much older person, I'm just kind of uh, that that's a fan reaction or a viewer reaction that I'm kind of anticipating more than the violence. I agree. And I think that um, I think it's really worth planting the flag here that this idea, certainly by the end of the episode, it's clear this heiress's intentions for the future of his relationship with Lady Allison, that he would have her be the queen. Uh, that this is going to be the direction that he chooses to go in. I think that these ideas of um, uh, these power dynamics, we've been talking about this on the podcast as well, Richard, about this show being uh, putting the, the patriarchy very, very front and center here in the narrative of Westeros. I think some of these ideas of, of grooming being front and center on the show, we saw this a bit last week and we see it again this week with Otto and his relationship towards Allison. This is really, really icky territory and really tough subject matter that unfortunately is going to be very central to the narrative. Uh, Even as these characters are aging up, this is very integral, uh, you know, to to the story that's that's moving forward. So I feel like this happening in episode two, again, sort of like what was happening in episode one, may be instructive as far as what you want to be doing with your Sunday nights. Uh, This is going to be front and center in, in the show. And look, if you assess the Alicent Viserys thing, like in the vacuum of the show, there is something I I think you could see that's a little bit sweet about the fact that he is choosing love. And I think Alicent clearly has, I don't know if it's just political ambition infused in her from her father or whatever, but like there seems to be a genuine connection there where when we see this awkward scene with Corliss's very young daughter and Viserys, it's like that would only be a marriage of political convenience and right. nothing else. And maybe in the short term, it's nice that the heart wins out but like obviously given that this is a game of thrones show that's this choice is probably going to lead to disastrous ends. yeah very fairly likely uh so we're gonna we're gonna see the conversation continue with allison and rhaenyra uh so these conversations that allison is having with viserys this is not uh this is not on rhaenyra's radar at all uh and so allison is sort of in this really tricky situation where her father has pushed her into having this uh this companionship with Viserys. Viserys himself uh, is saying, you don't mention our talks to Rhaenyra, do you? I I kind of worry she wouldn't understand them. 
the secrecy surrounding all of this feels like yet another way in which this situation is kind of bubbling towards disaster. Yeah, he, I, I, don't, I don't. Sometimes I would rather do, you know, the worst thing imaginable than talk to my 15 year old daughter. Right. Well, in this case, like not talking to her about these developments is going to make it all the more worse, you know, all the worse. Yeah. And yeah. and, um, you know, we see toward the end of the episode when she when Rhaenyra storms away, it's like that's a huge betrayal on, from both sides, father and friend. And and maybe it would have been softened some if she'd been aware that this was a happening. heads up, right? Yeah. You know, some notice maybe yeah. would have, would have been, hey, I'm helpful. dating your dad. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. That probably would yeah. have been great. Or, Hey, I'm trying to date your best friend. Also <laughs> right, probably right. wouldn't okay? have hurt. <laughs> yeah. Can we just talk that through? Uh, you know, this is something that, uh, your friend in mind, the great, uh, Katie Rich here at vanity fair had talked to us about in between podcasts, this idea of, uh, the first episode of this show with Viserys, maybe delivering a character flaw that he can't quite recover from. Uh, Katie had said that it's not the same as Ned Stark cutting off the deserter's head in the pilot. He made what felt like the right decision uh, Viserys did, but did it in a cruel way. And even though I feel like I can trust him as a ruler, he doesn't feel like a character I can truly root for going forward. Uh, Am I reading this wrong? Or are the ramifications of that horrible birth scene going to continue throughout the series? I think one way, uh, this is me now, I think one way, Richard, that this is continuing in this episode you're continuing to see Viserys make, I think, really uh, controversial decisions. I think that obviously there's there's a lot baked in to, to the choice to to marry a 15 year old in the first place. But I think that the the choice to keep this a secret from Rhaenyra to blindside her with the news at the end of this episode, alongside the rest of the small council, I think to to you know expand on Katie's point. I think it should give you some questions about Viserys, not just in terms of his character, but in terms of his uh, his leadership decisions, in terms of his capacity as the ruler of Westeros. Yeah, I mean, I think that the psychology that we see in Viserys thus far, you know, from this horrible decision made in the first episode, which, you know, could have been necessary, you know, someone, you know, to save one, the other had to die. Like, but there's going to be a ton of guilt and concern on his part about like, did I make the right decision? Was it all for naught? The baby ended up dying. You know, did I just kind of murder my wife to, you know, to sort of protect, enshrine my legacy and, and trying to both atone for that, make up for it, and also maneuver politically to not make that blunder or horrible decision, um, you know, have too many ripple effects. Um, I don't think that, you know, given that we've also seen him earlier with the sea snake kind of framed as this ineffectual leader, I I don't know that Viserys is going to make the right choices or, or make them in the right way. Yeah. Uh, I think that he's been a fascinating character for me to watch, Richard. Viserys isn't maybe the most, you know, blockbuster notable king in the Targaryen lineage. He has a big, uh, you know, big shoes to fill out with Jaehaerys the Wise, who we saw at the very start of the show, who had such a long reign and it was such a peaceful reign. And he's such a notable figure within Fire and Blood. And Viserys is really important uh, and has a lot to, to, to do with the rest of this story. Uh, has a lot of impact on what's going to what's going to come next and has a really good central role in it. But I think maybe a little thinly drawn in uh, a book that itself already is fairly thin, thinly drawn by by the nature of it being a historical text. Um, but I think that Patty Considine is is doing a lot to uh, let you buy into the humanity of the character. And I mean that in like both senses of you know, there are times where you're feeling for him, but I think that there are a lot of times where you're either repulsed by him or at least you you can really smell the the cowardice of some of his decisions, some of the desperation around him as well. I think he's a fascinating character. Yeah, uh, I don't think that he is necessarily a super root worthy character, 
But I think he's a really interesting one so far. He is. And as we saw in the first episode, like there's some sort of ailment. You know, he has some wound that won't heal. Um, so we can kind of assume that his tenure on the throne or on Earth is is ending, you know. Um, and I'm just kind of curious from a narrative perspective of when this is really going to become Rhaenyra and other people's story and not sort of them reacting to Viserys. Like, when will Viserys kind of fade away and these other characters will take the four? I don't know yeah. when that's going to happen, but clearly that's something that's being set up. And so he's kind of in his twilight. Um, if you want to meet, I assume that that disease was referenced, you know, for a reason. Yeah. Um, so we are going to see Viserys go for a little bit of a walk with Corlys and his favorite cousin, Rhaenys, the the queen who never was. And they are going to pitch uh, Viserys on marrying their daughter. Uh, join our houses. Uh, we both have the blood of the dragon coursing through our veins. You've got the dragons. We've got the ships. The crown's strongest ha- uh, days will be ahead of us, not behind. Uh, and Viserys seems like he's very blindsided by this. I wonder how much your read on this, Richard, was Viserys really authentically not having given marriage much thought? Or is he falling in love with Lady Allison, and that's what's interfering in this moment? Well, my immediate kind of read of it was that, like, you know, for all, you know, the horrible thing he did at the end of her life, like he and his old wife did seem to love each other in a genuine way. You know, there was a genuine partnership, a connection there. And so I think that, you know, in his grief, the the idea that that would be kind of punctured by this just starkly political, you know, second marriage um, to a child, uh, I think really throws him for a loop. And, you know, again, evidence of like, he's not always thinking as a ruler with a sort of political mandate. He's thinking more sort of in his emotions and and whatever. And that is a quality that is probably better suited to most people. But in in his very rare position, like he probably should have anticipated this and he really doesn't seem to have. No, I think that that's, again, another big tell about where where his head is at. Uh, happy you're on, of course, from from this huge tragedy. Um, but he is uh, he's not seeing that all of these uh, these these sharks are circling the ship, as it were, right now. Uh, and so he does seem to be taken somewhat unaware by it. But I think to your point that he is still very much thinking about his his wife uh, and that there's this conversation at the dinner table that follows next between Viserys and Rhaenyra, where they're still not really talking too much. It feels like maybe this will be a bit of a breakthrough conversation. At least they say some, you know, some mutual, uh, mutually kind words about uh, about his his wife, her mother. Um, but that's about it. There is still just this sadness that's kind of hanging between them. And I think also still this question of, and Rhaenyra will talk about this in this episode, of you're not choosing me to be the heir because you believe in me. You're choosing me to be the heir because you're trying to spurn your brother sort of seems to be her, her feeling on it. And I think when she's talking about how she wanted to give some insight to the small council and everything that's happening with the Stepstones, uh, that Viserys is fairly dismissive really quickly. He tells her, you're young, you'll learn. Uh, so it still seems pretty tense and pretty awkward between father and daughter. here. Yeah, especially when I think, in, in, in a lot of ways manifested in this episode, like Rhaenyra is a better leader. You know, she's she's ready. She she can see the, the the bigger chessboard in a way that her father, blinded by grief or sort of self-doubt or whatever it is, um, can't see. And and I think that even though in that situation where she's saying, like, I understand why you picked me um, and, and it's not it's not an advantageous advantageous perspective for her, but it is probably true in some sense. 
All right. Um, we'll continue with Viserys. You've been talking about it. We have to see the maggots being uh, applied to Viserys's dead flesh to stop the advance of the rot. Cool. That's what I have yeah. in my notes. It's great. <laughs> Thrilled to you see this. Start with crabs. Get some maggots midway. You know, we're we're hitting them all. All the hits here uh, in episode two of House of the Dragon. Uh, but Viserys is trying to suss out Otto Hightower, his his hand of the king, his advice when it comes to what Lord Corlys has uh, has proposed here. Uh, and it's so rich, the irony uh, that Otto is saying, oh, what an overreach. Uh, I can't believe <laughs> that he would uh, he would try to marry you off to his daughter. Uh, the nerve of this guy. Yeah, we see his his kind of cunning and the, the way that he really has Viserys' ear and, and, and a particular aptitude for how to talk to this particular king. You know, yeah. appeal to the emotion, appeal to the sort of, you know, softer side of, of these questions and Viserys will listen. And he does. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty clear that Otto is uh, is trying to angle this in a certain direction. Uh, you know, maybe points for restraint in not outright being like, oh, but I really wanted you to marry my daughter. Uh, but that's the subtext here. Very, very much. Uh, and him telling Viserys to, to be compelled to replace your wife for duty's sake. I do not envy you, but you are the king. Uh, and it feels like a lot of subtle work that's going on from Otto uh, in the direction of, um, you know, maybe there's somebody else who, you're, uh, who you're, your heart is telling you to look at. Uh, so all of that is, is happening as far as Viserys' looming choice. It's juxtaposed, Richard, with this scene of Viserys and Lena going for a walk. She is 12 years old, and yeah. uh, this is a really, really difficult thing to to watch. It just, I think the 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 just the the size of the actors uh, that does a lot in terms of stressing mm -hmm. how messed up this situation particularly is. Yeah, and I think that Patty Considine, the actor who plays Viserys, does such a good job of you know he's talking, he's he's repulsed, but he doesn't want this child to see that. You know, right? He's trying to be polite, but also realizing. Which ever, with every step that he's having, he's walking closer, literally, to having to make this, you know, insane decision if he if he chooses to make it. Like, and and I just think it's a really well calibrated scene. And then you have the young actress Nova Fue Mose, uh, who plays young Lena. Um, she's you know doing a good job of this. Is a very trained kid. You know, she is saying exactly what she should. And then she breaks a little bit when he says, "And what did your mother say?" And she says, "Oh, that I wouldn't have to bed you till I'm 14." You yeah. know, which is a horrible thing to hear. Um, but it's just, I love that little bit of detail because you can imagine the conversation that she had with Rainus, where Rainus was like, look, I got passed over. We're going to make this happen for you. And I know it sounds icky and gross because he's an old man, but like, I promise you, it, it, you won't have to do anything gross for a couple of years. And as if yeah. that's some sort of comfort, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point, Patty Considine, I think plays this scene really well. You see that on Viserys too, of like, my God, what are we talking about right now? You know, kind yeah. of uh, that energy that's emanating from this scene. One thing that she talks about in this scene that I think is worth noting now is she brings up Vagar. Uh, I think we've talked about this a little bit, Richard. Vagar is one of the three original dragons as part of Aegon's conquest. Uh, the only one of those three that is still alive. But whereabouts unknown, we're hearing. Uh, Viserys is saying that there's some speculation that Vagar is uh in uh, has made home on the coasts of the narrow sea uh you know i i want to be careful about not spoiling too much but what i will tease out here is that the story of vagar and uh and lena targaryen uh, lena valerian rather 
um, linked, very linked. Uh, so it's it's mm. cool to be getting this shouted out at this point in time. You yeah, can look I mean, forward I, to some stuff going on here. At this point on this show, which I think is narratively a little more spare than the original Game of Thrones, just because there are, we're not in multiple different environments, you know, we're not in the north and in the desert and here and there. Um, because we're more streamlined, I think any kind of reference like that, you have to kind of make a mental note of, you know, because mm-hmm. clearly they are putting these puzzle pieces down with very much, you know, intentionally. Yeah. And I mean, how much of it is because this will pay off in the show versus how much is this just, you know, sort of chum for the book readers? You know, sure. here's a, yeah. here's an Easter egg. Here's an Easter dragon egg. Uh, this is this is somewhat that. But also, uh, I think you can you could look forward to uh, some Vagar action at some point in time on the show. Uh, so get excited about that. What did you make of the the scene that immediately follows this Rhaenyra and Rhaenys, uh, the the similarly named princesses here? One who is the queen who never was. One who is the queen that shall be someday, question mark, here where there's this question about, I don't know if you understand the way the game this is played, this sort of mutual accusation of, uh, you know, I don't know that you understand the the actual lay of the land here, Rainier, with a lot of the attitude of, I'm the person who has been anointed uh, to the to the Iron Throne. A bunch of people just pledged their loyalty and bent the knee to me. Uh, and Rainey's is saying that's not going to matter when your father has a son. Um, what did you right. think of this entire scene? Well, yeah, I mean, that's isn't that like a classic generational conflict? You know, the tensions between second wave feminism and third wave feminism. Like, you know, the young people saying, "No, we've we've turned a corner. There's progress. They bent the knee to me. I'm going to be queen." And Rain is, is saying, "No, I've lived through this. They're not going to do it. Like, I promise you. You know, maybe maybe things feel different, but I don't really trust that these men have evolved." you know, as rapidly as you seem to think they have. And I think that Rhaenyra is not so naive to think that like now it's like equal rights for everybody in Westeros, you know, I, I, or or even in, in like the court. Um, she gets that she's a rarity, but like, I, I think, unfortunately, I, I think that Rhaenys is definitely right here. Um, right. We already see a lot of those pieces kind of spinning into play. What, as Rhaenys points out, what is all of this scramble for her father to get married? It's about the likely chance that he would have a male heir and that thus kind of correct the lineage. Um, so I, I, I want to believe in the, the future that Rhaenyra sees, at least for herself. But I think Rhaenys, you know, having lived a few more years, uh, probably has the right uh, outlook on things. And also we have watched Game of Thrones. So uh, well, we also were familiar <laughs> right. with, with right. this world. Yes. Right, right. Uh, and I, I do think that this scene, it, this was a really, really good scene for, I think, the thematics of the show. I think it was really important to get these two characters in the room together and Rainey's kind of serving as a potential cautionary tale for Rainiera here. Like, listen to me, I'm coming to you with the lived experience and I'm not trying to upset you. I'm trying to reality check you based on what's happened with me. I think that the longer this show goes on, the further we get into this story, I think people are really going to like the queen who never was. I don't know how she's resonating with you so far, Richard, but I've really enjoyed the way that the show is adapting this character. Yeah, I like her a lot. I mean, Eve Bess is a great actor, um, has been good in so many things on screen and on stage. And uh, it's fun to see her in this kind of role. And I think that what is fun about this scene, or especially interesting about this scene, is that, yes, I think that she genuinely doesn't want this girl who she's known her whole life to be disappointed or jilted or worse. But there's there's some teasing going on there, too. There's a bit of a sort of sting to to how she's saying it and why she's saying it and um is that just sourced in like i got passed over bitterness i think that's part of it but i think it's also that 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 rainus probably sees rainira as an obstacle to her family uh and enjoys the fact that she could potentially ruin 
this kid's trajectory because yeah. in the same way that hers was it's it's there's a little i don't know it's not miss havisham toying with you know uh estella and everything like that but there, there's something familiar about the way that, that that kind of relationship plays out that i like uh viserys is once again with alicent when he is confiding in her that there is all of this pressure for him to marry again. Uh, and Allison says, well, you know, a good and kind queen will give comfort to your subjects. Uh, and the subtext here is is pretty, pretty clear. Uh, given where the episode ultimately ends, was there any surprise that that was the direction that this ultimately was going for you, Richard? Or were you pretty much picking up what the show was putting down? No, I was picking it up. I guess my, my question was, when did Allison decide like, mm-hmm. when did she know that this was her dad's motivation? Was it immediately? Did she kind of grok that eventually? Like, right. I think that Allison is such an interesting character because we were kind of we haven't really been in her head much yet. You know, I'm hoping that we will as the show goes on. But like, I think it's a great observation because there's the there's the world in which is she falling for Viserys or right. is she being put in this really terrible position as well? And I think that some of the self-harm that you're seeing from her, you know, cutting her her fingers, this is going to get observed by her father later. Um, this is the type of detail that isn't in the book that this is based on, given what the nature of that is, that it's a historical text. Uh, that's just not the level of character detail that you're you're really seeing here. But I feel like it's underscoring a lot of the 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 you know the sharpness of this entire situation, and I think that it's a very good call out that we don't really know necessarily how Allison feels about all of this. No, and even if she does feel some sort of dawning affection for Viserys, this guy who's her dad's age, basically a little younger, maybe like you know, is there something fatherly about that? If if it is romantic, I mean, is that not something? akin to Stockholm syndrome in some way right, like right. like is this a genuine thing i don't know that it could ever be fully uncompromised no matter yeah. how she feels yeah uh well speak of the devil and he shall appear auto high tower shows up at this moment to uh to let the king know we got a situation uh your brother he's at it again uh prince damon who has been holed up in dragonstone uh for the last half year which is not where he's supposed to be. He is married to a woman of the Vale. He should be in the Eyrie. Uh, he is not there. He is instead parked at Dragonstone and has been there unchallenged, um, you know, kind of in this uh, this very big come at me, bro, sort of uh, vibe towards his brother. Uh, he is there and he has now gone a step further, Richard. He has come and stolen a dragon's egg to place in the cradle of his upcoming child, uh, he is about to get married. He's going to take a second wife. Missaria, who we met last time, uh, is going to be his wife uh, in the in the styling of Targaryens who have multiple wives of old Valyria. Uh, and it's not just any dragon egg. It is the same egg that was in the cradle that was placed for Prince Balon, um, Rhaenyra's late brother, uh, the heir for a day. She's pissed. So is Viserys. They're in this war of insults, you know, and, and there's something I think kind of pathetic and petty about it's like, oh, come on, you had to get that one egg, you know, like, but and what, what I obviously they realize they're not dumb is that like these little petty insults that ultimately don't really matter that much, you know, what egg he chose or whatever have massive consequences. And yeah. I think that the show is doing a good job of, of, you know, and we also, you know, we know that there are people under their rule. There's a whole city full of them. their cities, plural. And that they're so cavalier with like their well-being, you know, because if there's turmoil in the court, there's turmoil everywhere just to kind of get one in on their, you know, their niece. You know, it just feels, yeah. um, you know, it's frustrating, but in, in, in the, the right way. 
Uh, so Viserys himself is so upset and he wants to go to Dragonstone and drag uh, Damon out of the castle. Uh, Otto won't allow it. He says, I have to go. It's not it's not safe for you to go. Plus, I really hate your brother and I would love to be the guy who does this. Uh, so he is going to lead a small squadron of people back to Dragonstone. Really exciting to see this location again for the first time in uh, many years for us now. Uh, and I think a lot of the ways in which it's a familiar location. And yet I think that the way that it is painted in this episode, the scene of Otto's contingent meeting Damon on the bridges leading up to the castle of Dragonstone um, with the with the sun hanging low in the sky and the threat, the rumbling of dragons in the distance. Very evocative. Some of my favorite stuff that's been presented to us on House of the Dragon thus far. Yeah, I mean, I love, as I did reading the books and watching the original show, I just love all the little moments of exploration of these other castles and noble houses and noble territories. And, and you know, it it's just a fun kind of for the completionist who wants the whole taxonomy of how Westeros is, you know, organized. Like, it, 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 I like it. And so Dragonstone, correct me if I'm wrong. This is where we sort of met Stannis Baratheon on the original show. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Stannis yeah. Baratheon was given Dragonstone by King Robert. Uh, and uh, he's been holed up there for quite some time. And eventually Daenerys takes it back as her seat. It's been long linked to the Targaryens. This is where they lived before they conquered Westeros. And so it's remained in the family. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So parallels and, and connections. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Very much. Very, very much. Uh, so it's a big, you know, everyone's chest is puffed out and it looks like it's going to come to blows. And eventually we're going to see Rhaenyra show up. And this is our first sort of dragon clash or close to it, at least, Richard. This is the House of the Dragon. This is the show that's supposed to be the dragon heavy Game of Thrones show. And now we finally see two dragons in in a lot of their glory. We see Damon's dragon, Caraxes, the red worm is what he is known as with the long neck uh, the red scales. We see Rhaenyra show up on Syrax, who is gold. Uh, what did you think of getting these two dragons in action? Just the threat of uh, of Armageddon looming over this scene. I mean, it's fun foreshadowing for what I assume there will be some big dragon battle, probably in episode nine. You know, that's my guess, because <laughs> it's always the prologue. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dragon Clash sounds like a video game I would have played at the arcade when I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old. Sounds uh, like one I'd play today if it were <laughs> well, available. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's exciting. And I think that we're seeing Rhaenyra's prowess um, and her her ability to... T- I mean, she and Damon have a common sort of thing. They're both really headstrong and ambitious and tough. And um, that can serve them well. I think in Rhaenyra's case, it'll probably serve her bad at other times. Um and, uh, you know, she's she's maybe getting a little, uh, you know, out over her skis, as they say, like, yeah, she's maybe taking off too much, you know, more than she can handle really under the auspices of like her father and everyone else who's trying to control her. Yeah. The danger here is that she is the heir. And if something were to happen to her, what happens to right. the line? Yeah. Uh, and so she's just taken this on her own and she does a great job of dismantling the situation. She calls Damon on his bluff. He throws her the egg and walks away. Um, but Viserys, when he comes to find that Rhaenyra went and did this, he has a lot of righteous fury uh, towards his daughter in this moment um, and and telling telling her that you're my only heir. You could have been killed. We're in a pretty precarious situation, Rhaenyra, and we have to be very, very careful right now. So I think that her taking this drastic measure when we come back and we're skipping a little bit ahead to, to her and her father sort of post morteming this. Uh, that we are going to get, uh, I think, 
as close to an honest conversation as we're like to get for a little while, especially how all of this ends, where he is going to say, because like, you know, because of the situation we're in, I, I hope you understand that I, I need to uh, take a new wife. I, I will never replace your mother, but we need to propagate the line. Our line is vulnerable. And by marrying again, I can ensure we're better defended. And I think that House of the Dragon, whether or not this is working for the royal you out there, I think is trying to position these things, uh, birth, childbirth, marriage. This is war. You know, this isn't love. We, we are better defended if I marry again against whoever dares to challenge us. Uh, it's just such a, an offensive way of describing these things that are supposed to be the joys of life. Uh, I think it's a really fascinating way of looking at it on the show. And I think that's where you can see the sort of mechanics of why women are so subjugated, even in, you know, even noble women, women in, of the court, is because yep. they need them for strategic reasons. And they can't organize that in the way they want to if the women have any sort of agency or free will or anything. And and Rhaenyra clearly is a challenge to that. Um, and her father is, you know, it's an awkward situation as, you know, he's her dad. He loves her. But like. He's ha he has to be like, unfortunately, like you women have a function in this whole setup and you are not living up to that, you know, or you're not allowing other women like to live up to that, you know, in terms of people he would marry. And, you know, I think the show is commenting to its credit on these really gendered systems and um, trying to suss out like how that would actually feel for a young woman in this position. Yeah. In this moment. What do you think happens if Viserys says to Rhaenyra, okay, so I'm glad that we've talked about this and you understand, and by the way, I'm going to marry your best friend? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, mean, a, just an aside, yeah. that's what I'm planning to do next. Right. Yeah. That is like the rudest kind of way to try to shake her awake, you know, be like, you know, there are ways that things work. And by the way, the way that this is going to work is that I'm marrying your your. <laughs> your, your what best he ends up doing isn't any more polite i feel like you know he is making this grand pronouncement in the small council and it is breaking news to everybody in the room it seems like he is he is announcing that he and lady allison are to be married and it feels like the way it reads to me is that he has not talked this through with anybody no. uh that this is including allison it feels like um, and that he's making this call and this is coming after a lot of the conversations he's had throughout this episode. Uh, there's the scene that he has with Lionel Strong, another member of the small council, who is one of the only members of the small council who isn't pitching his own child to uh, King Viserys. And he's the one who says, you should marry uh, Lady Lena, uh, you know, strengthen the houses, make things nice with the sea snake. This is a good call. And Viserys is going to make the choice that he makes ostensibly for love, if you want to call it that. Um, and Rhaenyra has not been read in on any of this, despite the fact that they had had a fairly decent conversation, it would seem, about why Viserys is making the choices that he is going to make. Was there a better way of doing this, you think? <sighs> I mean, probably trying to get the Sea Snake and Rhaenys to some extent, like trying to come up with some other thing like i don't want to marry your daughter but what if we married off some of our kids or what if we struck up this other allegiance or alliance or whatever you know um but just to kind of some blind... attempt at yes ending this exactly but he blindsided yeah. him and then you start to wonder that conversation between rhaenyra and rhaenys when she says men would rather put the whole thing to the torch than see a woman in power was she maybe talking about her own husband you know right. like 
just so you know, if this doesn't go the way we want, my family wants it to go, this is going to be bad for you. Um, so it might have been a much more personal and not a sort of more general, you know, hypothetical uh, thing. And I think that for Viserys to underestimate how serious uh, the Valerians are about all this uh, was the, probably the biggest error he's made yet. There's a lot of different inflection points, I think, a lot of like hinge moments that this show is swinging on moving forward into this story. Um, you could you could say that what happened last week with the death of Queen Emma and uh, Viserys's role in that, um, pu- pushing the story forward into the places that it's going to go. I think that this choice here, this is worth planting a flag in. I think that this is a, a monumental move in terms of where House of the Dragon is going, what this story is going to be focusing on moving forward. A lot goes differently if different choices are made in this moment. So uh, we'll be going back to this scene uh, quite a bit. I think going back to this episode quite often as we continue uh, breaking down the show. It's bad for Rhaenyra. It seems to be bad for Rhaenyra and Allison's relationship as Rhaenyra turns and leaves. It's certainly pretty ugly between Viserys and the Sea Snake, who also turns and leaves. And we close the episode with him talking to a different Targaryen. Mm-hmm. He is going to summon Prince Daemon to Driftmark, his own home. Uh, and he's basically going to pitch Daemon on, if your brother isn't going to help me with this threat, with these people who are feasting my navy uh, to the crabs, then perhaps you would like to take a crack at it. Uh, and so we're going to get this alliance at the end of this episode between Coralise and Daemon. Uh, that's leading us into uh, potentially, Richard, our first real taste of war on House of the Dragon. Yeah, no, I, I think we're 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 just about due for some sort of battle scene. I think, um, and so really quick, uh, the the crab feeder. He is the leader of. They're supposed to be what pirates from. Marines, so, so, right? So it's called it's called the Triarchy, uh, and it's an alliance of a few of the free cities, uh, Mir, Lys, and Tyrosh, uh, which were in conflict with Volantis, which is uh, you know stemming from old Valyria. So a lot of a lot of the a lot of the Valyrian disputes still alive and well here, and they have um, this character who is the the crab feeder, uh, Crag, um, Drehar, I believe is how you pronounce it, but gosh, what a name. Uh, and he is this Prince Admiral, uh, is, is what he is known as. And he is posted up here in the Stepstones and is, uh, causing all of this ruckus. And there's theorizing here that this is like a, 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 a city sanctioned event, that this isn't just terrorism that is just emerging from this unsponsored group, that this is, you know, getting close to not quite open war against Westeros, but definitely, you know, hitting the pieces of the Jenga tower to see what's weak and what could fall over. Um, so that's sort of the threat that the sea snake sees. And this is the threat that he is, uh, you know, advising Viserys early in the episode. You can sail toward the storm or around it, but you don't want to just sit and wait for the storm to hit you. Right. Which is kind of Viserys' MO. It seems. Yeah. Um, uh, it so does the sea make, snake is yeah. basically saying, well, then let's hit the let's hit the storm ourselves. Right. Uh, you know, you know someone's going to go to a it. like-minded individual and Damon for that. Yeah. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. 
What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of the Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. And that's the episode. That's week two of House of the Dragon in in the books. Uh, very eventful stuff here happening in week two, Richard. Yeah, yeah. Big things uh, to come. Big things already happening. Um, I, you know, if people want to write in to stillwatchingpod at gmail.com about anything, but I actually would particularly like to hear from people who have thoughts on this whole age discourse, you know, that's yes. clearly uh, going to be a big part of the show, I feel like, um, at least for the foreseeable few episodes next few episodes um i'd love to to hear that and we can try to you know read some responses uh, on the air next week absolutely so that's still watching pod at gmail.com please write in we would love to hear from you we'll be back next week continuing to break down house of the dragon here on the still watching podcast richard if people want to get in touch with you further where can they find you on twitter I'll, I'll be at Rylaws and writing on VF.com, where actually uh, I will have coverage of some upcoming fall film festivals to look forward to. Very fun. You can talk to me at Round Howard online. I am recapping House of the Dragon here at VF.com and writing further about the show as well. So hopefully you are enjoying that. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast and we will be back next week to talk more about House of the Dragon. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye bye. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.